Amen. Well, welcome. Welcome to our midweek study. We are continuing our study in the book of Esther. This evening we are in Esther chapter 3. James chapter 4, verse 1, it says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Uh, we're going to see the reality of that <clears throat> this evening as we, um, as we see, we are introduced to Haman. Boo. <laughs> and so we're going to, we're, we're entering into a chapter and we'll study a chapter that if you just took it by itself would be kind of difficult um, to understand, but we have to look at the whole picture, the whole book of Esther, to understand how it fits into everything. And again, last week I was telling you to pay attention to the details and what the Lord is doing in the midst of it. And in um, all the things that are being set up um, by God's providence to bring about God's will. So if we only looked at this chapter in Esther, we would think that the Jews were doomed. And that the enemy of the Jews really actually had the upper hand. In fact, tonight that is exactly what we're going to do. We're, we'll see, we're going to study that. We're going to see how the enemy is plotting against the Jews because Mordecai refuses, refuses to bow down to pay homage to Haman. And what we need to understand is that this is reality because we live in a fallen world where the enemies of God are always plotting against him. And it is indeed a relentless battle. We wish it were different, right? That, that he would give us some reprieve, but we need to always be vigilant, sober-minded, that we may be able to discern when the enemy does come against us. Sometimes a little bit more severe than other times, but nonetheless, he's always pushing. This is the reality of the world that we're living in. And we have been warned by Jesus that what they do to him, they will do to us, his people. Just as the world is set against Israel today, so it has always been. This is nothing new. With Daniel, as my sisters, you've studied through or are studying through the book of Daniel. With Daniel the prophet, we get a glimpse of what is happening in the spiritual realm. Something very important for us to acknowledge and and just really understand in the moment that this is exactly what is happening. In Daniel chapter 10, and verse 10, it says, And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you, and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because 
of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. This is exactly what's happening in the heavenly realm today. If only God would peel back, perhaps, uh, and give us a glimpse of the heavenlies just Just for a moment, we would see this very thing taking place. In fact, the Apostle Paul, as he wrote to the Ephesians, wrote this in Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But we are not, we do not face these things without first being prepared well by our Lord. Because Jesus warns us and prepares us for what's to come. In John chapter 16, 33, and I know I, I refer to this verse a lot, and that is because I believe that we need to be reminded of this verse a lot. Understanding exactly what Jesus spoke to his disciples in that day, he speaks to us today, saying, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And I know, brothers, this last Monday we studied and we went through that and we covered John chapter 16, verse 33. And so you are reminded once more of the truth of Jesus' words in that verse. This is exactly why we must be determined. We must be consistent in abiding in Christ and walking with him. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. To persevere, to keep going, to keep your eyes fixed on the Lord, but you cannot do that unless you are abiding in Christ. Because it's not by our strength, it's not by our might, it's not by our power. It's by the Spirit of God only. As we abide in Christ And draw upon him and his love, his grace, his spirit. But at the same time, understanding that it's by God's spirit and by his grace. Again, being reminded of those things that he does the work in and through the person who surrenders to him. You see, sometimes we think it's, uh, it's in our strength. If we only do this, then perhaps we'll be better we, we, can't, we can't improve the flesh. We can't. It must be crucified. We must pick up our cross and then follow the Lord. The time is coming in the story where Esther is confronted by Mordecai because she's somewhat questioning whether she should do what he's asking her to do. 
But he tells her that if she keeps silent, then relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. In Esther 4.14, if you stay silent, rest assured, deliverance will come for the Jews from somewhere else. Mordecai. He has demonstrated himself to be a man of integrity. A man who has persevered, who has endured. He has shown his integrity in the upbringing of Esther for his uncle. How he loved Esther, gave her wise counsel, checked on her often. And when he overheard the plot against the king, he tells Esther to make sure the king is told so that he may not be harmed. This man is the one who refuses to bow down and pay homage to Haman, even if it means he transgresses the king's command, and that's what we'll see this evening. Even if he transgresses the king's command and then puts into motion, seemingly he is the, the cause of it, puts into motion this whole plot against the Jews. Father, we are fully aware of the reality of being a believer in this fallen world. We understand, we know that we are in this world, but we're not of the world. We are pilgrims on a journey going home. And so, Lord, Help us to be better prepared for those things that are difficult. That we may be wise and discerning. That we may be strong, abiding in Christ and drawing from him everything that we need in order to walk in victory that we would be more than conquerors in Christ Jesus, our Lord. May you help us to keep our eyes fixed upon you and walk with great hope, with purpose. And so, Lord, minister to us this evening by your word and by the power of your spirit. Help us to understand that which is before us, Lord, the, the scriptures that we are about to go over. Lord, that, that you may give us remembrance of these things and you may even call to our memory, Lord, our, those verses that perhaps would help strengthen what you're desiring for us to learn this evening. And so... We commit this time into your hands, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Esther chapter 3, verse 1 says, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And so here we are introduced to Haman the Agagite. Uh, Haman was promoted by the king to the position being over all of the other officials in the kingdom. He was a descendant 
of the Amalekites, of those who were sworn enemies of the Jews. In fact, the Lord had commanded King Saul back in 1 Samuel chapter 15 to to devote the entirety of the Amalekites to destruction. But Saul, we know as we've gone through 1 Samuel chapter 15, we know the account um, of, of this whole event that I'm pointing to and reminding you of who the Amalekites are. We know that Saul, although he was commanded by God, by God to completely devote them to destruction, Saul spared King Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle and disobeyed what God had told him to do. We know that Samuel the prophet had confronted Saul about his disobedience. And instead of confessing his sin, Saul tried to justify it by saying he would dedicate it all to the Lord. I have, I have reserved the best for the Lord. And so he said, I'm going to offer it to the Lord. But it was too late. And Samuel told Saul that because of his disobedience, he would lose the kingdom. And it would be given to a man after God's own heart, according to 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. This was not the first time that Saul had transgressed the Lord's command and stepped out of line. Samuel did what Saul should have done. Because God had commanded Saul... To devote them to destruction. And after he rebuked Saul. It was Samuel who took the sword into his own hand. And he literally chopped up King Agag into pieces. Again, these were sworn enemies of Israel. And so as we have that background, we begin to understand who the Amalekites are. Who Haman is. Who the Agagites are. They were descendants of King Agag. And we begin to understand what is happening with Esther as we look back and see that the Amalekites have always been the enemies of Israel. In fact, we can go back to Exodus. Exodus chapter 17 verse 8 says, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. That I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name Name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. A sworn enemy. 
of Israel. Haman was a descendant of Amalek. This was the man who was promoted promoted above everyone else who was under King Ahasuerus. And we ask a question, being the sworn enemy of Israel, why would God allow an ungodly man to be placed in such a position of authority and influence? We ask that question because we perhaps... I think that we have um, doubts, questions about it. Sometimes even thinking, I wouldn't have done it that way. I have a, a, a better way. But apparently, God had a plan. If you ever think that God doesn't have a plan, that this is something... Uh, I don't know if God can use this. Think again. Now, we always quote, quote Romans 8.28 when things are going pretty good. <laughs> All things work together. What's that? You guys know the verse, right? <laughs> to those who love God and are called according to his purpose, yeah. We need to be reminded of that often. Remember, we're talking about God's providence throughout the book of Esther. Talking about his providence. That means he is sovereign. He's never lost control. He's always been on the throne. He is eternal. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the creator of the universe. Psalm 33.10 says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. And so even with Haman being promoted to this position of authority and influence in the kingdom of Persia, do not lose heart. God is still in control. Verse 2 says, And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? <laughs> Listen, I need to understand that the Bible does not forbid a person to bow to another as a show of respect, as is the example of when Moses bowed to his father-in-law Jethro's out of respect in Exodus chapter 18, verse 7. But it's different when one is subjecting oneself to the worship of another. Such was the case with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When they refused to pay homage and bow down to a statue and then with Daniel, as he continued to pray to God and no other, he did what he had always done. He wasn't going to stop praying to his God and 
now pay homage and bow down to someone else. He just wasn't going to do that. In the case of Mordecai, in the mention of Haman being an Agagite, an Amalekite, I'm thinking that perhaps Mordecai, he knew this. And he, being a Benjamite, was not about to bow down to an Amalekite. He is a sworn enemy of the Israelites. Mordecai stood on his conviction and the king's servants confronted him when they saw time and time again that he just would not bow down and he would not pay homage to Haman. And they asked him, they confronted him, why do you transgress the king's command? Why don't you just go along with it? Why don't you just obey the decree? Now, Mordecai knew very well that this would, would lead to a swift death. But he was willing to die rather than pay homage to such an enemy. To compromise or not to compromise. You see, some people are very willing to compromise their godly convictions in the name of unity, peace, compassion, mercy, or even grace. But it really comes down to being fearful. When everyone else is saying unity, we're fear fearful of being looked upon as being in disunity. When the Bible clearly tells us to not be in fellowship with darkness, according to 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 through 18. That is the problem with ecumenism. I don't want to look like I'm not in unity. I want to give the, the appearance that we're unified under one banner. And yet, when we align ourselves with those who have... Beliefs in false doctrine, who follow false doctrine, who compromise, is not the unity that we want. And that is not the unity that, the, that God calls us to. We can't be fearful of being looked upon as not desiring unity with everyone who simply claims to be a Christian. Fearful of distress and agitation. Well, you're not at peace. Well, don't be fearful of distress and agitation. Because the Bible clearly teaches that we ought to know conviction and spiritual distress when we're walking in the flesh. I'm not comfortable. Good. I'm glad you're not comfortable. You shouldn't be comfortable. You should be agitated. You should be distressed. You're not walking right with the Lord. Galatians 5, 16 through 24, 2 Corinthians 7, 10. Could be fearful of not showing compassion. When the Bible clearly teaches that we are to let love be genuine, but also abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, Romans 12, 9. Fearful of not showing mercy. And the Bible clearly tells us that God says friendship with the world is enmity with God, according to James 4.14 or 4.4. 4. 
I had even referred to Saul and the Amalekites. God was telling Saul to not show any mercy. Why? Because he knew what the Amalekites were all about. They had to be devoted completely to destruction. And yet Saul showed them mercy. And he saved, as he would say, well, I I saved the king and I saved the best of the cattle and the sheep. And then when he was confronted, not until he was confronted, did he say, well, this was all saved to be an offering to the Lord. You see, someone could have told Mordecai, you know, it says in the Bible, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You ever heard that? Romans 12, 18, not that that had been written, but the principle is always there. Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I've heard that used out of context and, and used to, to shame people into compromising themselves. It's always the word of God, the will of God is preeminent in everything. Because if we use that verse and that would be the case with Peter and John when they were told not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus in Acts chapter 4 verse 18. Or when Paul was stoned in Lystra and left for dead in Acts chapter 14. Or when the Apostle Paul caused a riot in Jerusalem at the temple in Acts 21. Peter, John, Paul. They could have all been told, quit causing trouble. And do everything you can to make peace. But that's not the peace that God is referring to. You see, the peace that we ought to always persevere in and pursue and desire is first and foremost to be right with the Lord. That's the peace that surpasses all understanding. That's the peace that's going to guard your minds and your hearts in Christ Jesus. There are times when a child of God will not be peaceful toward the world and the things that oppose God's word. We ought to be ready for that. We shouldn't be at peace with that at all. Now, those who stand on biblical principle will be opposed by God's enemies because they are not friends of the world or the things of the world, the philosophies of the world. John 15, 20 says, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And so Mordecai simply stood on his convictions, come what may. Basically, he was telling them what Peter And John had told those who told them to stop teaching and preaching in the name. You could say, Mordecai was telling those that were there, judge for yourselves whether it's right to bow or not bow, to pay homage or not pay homage. But as for me, I will not bow to Haman, the enemy of my people. Just refuse to. So you judge. 
whether it's right. And he didn't. But they didn't just tell him once. They told him over and over and over. Verse 4 says, And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Now, what this implies is that Haman initially didn't know that Mordecai was not paying homage to him. He was not bowing down to him. But, of course, the king's servants, after having told Mordecai over and over to do that very thing and refused to, told Haman that he was refusing to pay homage. So word came to Haman, hey, listen, Mordecai is just refusing to bow down to you, is refusing to pay homage. But along with this, they passed along the information that Mordecai, hey, listen, Mordecai is, a, is actually a Jew, When they told Haman, he was filled with fury, is what we have described here. The Hebrew word for fury here is hema, which means rage, indignation, a burning anger. He had so much anger burning within him that he wanted to destroy all of Mordecai's people. Hey, listen. He had such a disdain for him that he thought, I'm not just going to destroy him. I'm going to destroy all of the people, all of his people, the Jews. You see, anger will do this. The person filled with rage will not care who is in the path, will not care any, if, if anyone or all is destroyed or affected. There's no reason to know humility because as Haman was, this person who is in rage is filled with pride, being only concerned about self. James 1.20 says, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And Proverbs 29.11 says, A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Well, the question is, aren't we supposed to speak our minds? Aren't we supposed to speak honestly and truthfully and openly? Yes, we speak truth, but we attack the problem, not the person. And our goal should always be to align ourselves with the will of God. Not to promote our own purpose, our own goal, our own agenda. But God's agenda. We are to act, but not to react in, a, in an impulsive way. Because often that will be the reaction of the flesh and not the spirit. If you're not thinking... If you're just reacting in the flesh, it's definitely not of the spirit. Haman was a man who didn't care. He was filled with rage. He was now going to get back at Mordecai. And the way that he was going to get back in Mordecai? No, it just wasn't Mordecai. I don't care. I'll take Mordecai down and all of the Jews. We'll see how Mordecai feels after that. He wanted to take them all out. He didn't care. 
Verse 7 says, In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast per, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Yagagite, the son of Hamadatha, the, king, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. So from the first month to the twelfth month, they were casting lots. And finally, it was drawn the way Haman wanted. Interesting how it took that long to get his role. But remember, God is sovereign. His providence rules. And for his own reasons, he delayed the right role for 12 months. He delayed it. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. First of all, we have Haman's accusation in verse 8. Which says, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. And their laws are different from those of every other people. And they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not, uh, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. So what is Haman describing? Were the Jews scattered throughout the kingdom? The answer is yes. They were scattered throughout all 127 provinces of the kingdom. Were their laws different from those of every other people? Well, yes and no. If the laws that Haman was referring to was the law of Moses, the keeping of the festivals in the law of Moses, perhaps he was referring to them, then yes. Their laws, as far as what was provided for them, was different. But a question to ask is, did did all of the Jews refuse to bow down and pay homage to Haman? How how many people are described as not paying homage and bowing down to Haman? It was just one. Do you guys recall how many Jews remained in Persia? About 60,000 went to Jerusalem. About how many stayed behind? You guys remember? Millions, yeah. About two to three million. But what? We don't read that it was all of them or most or even most of the, of the Jewish people. And so this was definitely an embellishment by Haman. He said, it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If only the king in that moment would have just thought for a moment. Yeah, you know, the problem will be solved if you just kill all of them. Just kill all of them. You're going to solve this problem. 
And prior to this, listen, Haman was fine with the Jews. The king was fine with all the Jews. Their different laws were not keeping them from adhering to the Persian laws. And they had been loyal subject, subjects for years. For many years. Whether it was because of the law of Moses or because of Haman's lack of integrity, we don't know. But this is exactly what Haman used to manipulate the king and deceive him to make a decree that would ensure the killing of all of the Jews in Persia, the mass murder of two to three million Jews. We know in this short description of Haman, this meant he was not a man of integrity. In fact, the money that he was offering surely would come from the plundering of the Jews' property. He was not going to lose a thing. What he was offering was a nice little bribe of 10,000 talents. It was a carrot that he dangled before the king, and the king took it without asking any questions whatsoever. He agreed. In fact, we're told that he gave him his ring to seal the decree with it. Once it's sealed, that's it. Many scholars believe that the king probably thought that the people that Haman was referring to was a small group, group that was rebelling. Not a big group, but a smaller group. And that's what many scholars believe. Not two to three million. Remember, they had been, they had been living in exile for many years. 70 years before they started making their way back to Jerusalem. Either way, he handed his signet ring to ratify the decree, and he agreed to fund it and provide everything necessary to make it happen. Verse 12 says, Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps. And to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. And letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. The 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. And the couriers went out hurriedly by order, order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman, Haman sat down to drink, but, uh, to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So the decree was, was written, signed, sealed, delivered. To, and that's not a song. That's, but it is a song. But the things that we think about, huh? It was done. It was a done deal. It was read and to all the people, making sure that they understood, read in every language, so that wasn't ensured. For years, 
As I said earlier, for years, everyone had lived very well together. But now the, the whole kingdom was, was in a state of confusion. David Guzik said this, quote, Again, all this came to pass because of the insecurity and wounded pride of one wicked man, Haman. Just one. It was done. <clears throat> the edict had gone out, and the plans were set. We see here in the last verse how it is that Haman and the king sat down to drink, but the city was in a state of confusion. The king was unaware of the significance of what had been put into motion, and the other man, that is Haman, was well aware, perhaps even thinking to himself that he was really smart about it. Have outsmarted the king and had gotten away with, with revenge. After all, that is exactly what he was doing with Haman. He was seeking revenge. Numbers 32:23 says this, and be sure your sin will find you out. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This chapter, if left by itself, if you just consider this chapter, you might think, wow, how is this possible, right? How is this allowed to take place? And yet we know that this is just a, a, a small portion of what's to come that God has allowed to take place in order for something to happen as far as Esther is concerned. And the deliverance of God's people. Interesting. We'll see in the coming chapters how Haman is dealt with and how this is all exposed. It actually falls back on his own head. For now, he thinks he has had the victory. Listen, God's enemies will never prevail. Proverbs 21.30 says, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail, that is, prevail against the Lord. And Psalm 9.19 says, Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail, let the nations be judged before you. We, we can rest in the confidence that the Lord is victorious. There is no one who is above him. That even if we're going through difficult times, in the, and it seems as if all of our enemies are against us. Oh, just lean into the Lord and hold on to him. He is our hope. He is our refuge. He is our deliverer. He is our savior. And no one compares to him. And so we say, arise, O Lord. Let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Glorify yourself. He indeed will glorify himself. And it's awesome that we know the, the rest of the story. Because we can think about that and know that God has a bigger plan. And Romans 8.28 is in effect. Even as we learn 
And we know this chapter in the book of Esther. Father, as we consider who you are, oh Lord, I ask that you would minister to us in those, those times in life, Lord, when it seems as if everything is coming against us. Lord, it seems like things are not falling into place, but, are, but everything is falling apart. Help us to reassign our hope to you. Place our trust in you. To know that there is a bigger plan. And we ask that you would help us to be faithful to you. To rest in you. And just, just simply abide in Christ and draw from him. So thank you, Lord. Thank you for your grace. Thank you Lord, for the love that you have for us. And how it is that your promise to us is that you will never leave us and you will never forsake us. And you love us with an everlasting love. Help us to persevere in difficult times. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.